The American workforce system is at a critical juncture. With generative AI and broader technological change rapidly transforming work, policymakers must focus on preparing workers for the jobs of tomorrow. In this episode, Brent Arell is joined by leading workforce experts Harry Holzer, Greg Wright, and Rachel Lipson to discuss findings from the Workforce Futures Initiative, a research collaboration between AEI, Brookings, and Harvard. The panel reviews the evidence on the performance of the Federal Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, highlighting sector-based training and community colleges as essential for expanding skills training and addressing the demand for shorter-term credentials. These reforms, along with better data and labor market information systems, can strengthen connections between workers, employers, and training. Across all facets of the workforce system, from WIOA to the community college system, the panels emphasize evidence-based investments and human-centered design. The goal, Brent concludes, must be to incentivize reform and innovation to build a more agile workforce development system. I'm Hunter, the co-producer of Hardly Working and a research associate with Brent at AEI. I hope you enjoy this AEI event rebroadcast to hear these workforce experts dive deeper into the research, challenges, and opportunities for strengthening workforce training and employment pathways in America. Good morning. My name is Brent Orell. I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and I'd like to welcome you this morning to the Workforce Futures Initiative, How Well Does America's Workforce System Work? We, um, we have been gathering as a team, as a, a working group uh, around this question of what's working in the American workforce system for the past 18 months. Uh, we have uh, engaged in a number of conversations that we're going to be talking about, uh, providing you um, some insight into um, during that time. Uh, and uh, these are uh, conversations that we've been able to gather with experts from across the country in a variety of institutions, um, both from the workforce world and from those who spend their lives researching, trying to understand um, workforce development programming. Um, <clears throat> so the focus of this work uh, was really, uh, again, what do we think is working uh, in the workforce system uh, and how it might be improved? The second part of our um, program this morning is going to be devoted to just a very brief overview of the uh, new web portal that we're launching today that uh, can give you access to the conversations that we've been having over the last 18 months. Uh, on, that web page, on that website, you'll find um, summaries uh, of our meetings, transcripts of those meetings, uh, of the conversations that occurred in those meetings, and also the PowerPoints that were um, used uh, by the experts that we recruited uh, to provide us with their insights around the American workforce development system. And then later in the next uh, few weeks, we'll be adding papers that we've commissioned um, uh, from uh, leading experts on areas where we thought there was uh, additional need for um, uh, research on key topics. Uh, there'll be um, around a dozen of those papers coming out uh, in, the next, um, in the next month or so, uh, including both uh, papers that, again, provide some additional research and then responses um, from people providing alternative perspectives on the same questions. So let's go ahead and uh, advance to our agenda. Um, Josh, 
Thanks so much. Um, we're going to be going to introductions here in a minute. I'm going to let everybody introduce themselves uh, of the our, our four steering committee uh, members um, that are uh, on the uh, on the call that, this morning. Uh, we want to just review quickly the workforce futures initiative purpose and objectives, um, background on uh, the research uh, review sessions, an overview of the findings um, from those sessions. Then, as, as I said, we'll take a quick look at the web portal, and then we'll be going to Q and A. Um, and uh, you can direct those questions to. Um, uh, Josh Boynton, whose address is both in the slide and at the bottom of the slide right now, or on Twitter, uh, and then we'll be dealing with those questions at the end of, of the presentations. So um, the folks you see on uh, the call today are all part of the Workforce Futures Initiative Steering Committee. Um, myself, Brent Orell, um, I um, have been uh, working in this field for about 20 years. Um, I served in the George W. Bush administration uh, in a number of positions at uh, the U.S. Department of Labor, including as the acting uh, assistant secretary for employment and training. I also did about 10 years in private consulting on uh, workforce development related issues. Um, and uh, I, uh, I have been leading the effort on WFI um, at the American Enterprise Institute. And uh, we'll go now to Greg and he can introduce himself. Yeah, thank you, Brent. I'm uh, Greg Wright. I lead the Workforce of the Future Initiative at Brookings. And I'm an economist. And uh, so I've been very interested in some of these uh, questions from a research perspective. And uh, just really happy to be on the steering committee. And I think we've, we've learned a ton over the last uh, few months. So uh, very happy to be here. Harry. Uh, thank you, Brent. Good morning. Uh, my name is Harry Holzer. Uh, I'm the John LaFarge Professor of Public Policy uh, at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University. Uh, I'm a labor economist by training. I spent a lot of my career studying the lower end of the labor market and what might make it work better. Uh, uh, I am affiliated with Brookings as a non-resident senior fellow which is how I get connected to this project. Uh, and I'm a former chief economist uh, at the US Department of Labor uh, during the Clinton years. Uh, but I've been very glad uh, to have the opportunity to participate uh, in this event and in this project. Rachel. All right, I'll close this out. Um, I'm Rachel Lipson. Uh, as of Friday, I was the director of the Project on Workforce at Harvard University and uh, was a member of the founding team of that initiative. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Project on Workforce, we are a uh, cross-school interdisciplinary effort that's bringing together the Kennedy School, Harvard's Policy School, Harvard Business School, and the Graduate School of Education, um, and focused around uh, how do we answer questions about building better pathways into good jobs in the U.S.? So doing that work from an interdisciplinary lens as well as kind of a, a cross-sector um, lens. And my own interest and background is really sort of at the intersection of, of research and practice. How do we uh, ask research questions that can um, truly be relevant in the field for people who are out there doing the work? And then also to the extent that um, research captures interesting um, 
learnings about what's working and what hasn't? How do we disseminate that in ways that um, can be effective for practitioners? So uh, given that that lens and focus, um, uh, I was excited about this work alongside uh, my colleague, David Deming, who um, is our uh, faculty co-director at the Project on Workforce, as well as the academic dean at the Kennedy School, um, has spent his life studying uh, the economics of, of education and the labor market and uh, future of work topics. Um, we are excited to bring some of the work we've been doing at Harvard and partner with AEI and Brookings around seeing what the field at large is thinking about these questions. Uh, how can we collectively, hopefully, land at where the evidence is to date and where, where it needs to be going forward. So uh, thanks to Brent for his leadership and bringing us together and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Thanks, Rachel. It's really been an honor um, to work um, with the three of you and with David uh, over the last 18 months. Um, uh, the, this this um, steering committee uh, brings with it not just their own experience, but all of the relationships, webs of relationships and um, of other experts. Uh, and it's really just um, been a, an honor and a, a humbling experience to spend so much time, be, been able to spend so much time with people who are so deeply um, immersed in the in the field uh, that really care about policy and about um, uh, how we can make workforce opportunities better, um, especially for those who are struggling to get on to the workforce ladder and to advance uh, in employment. So um, many thanks to all of you really for uh, all the time that you've committed. Um, glad we didn't have to pay you for all that time um, because I don't think we could have afforded it. Uh, I'd also like to thank, um, and I would neglect, be neglectful if I didn't thank uh, the Walmart Foundation for their very generous support in making all of this possible. Um, we couldn't have done it without them, and um, uh, it's it's they've they've just been a tremendous support, uh, uh, not just in terms of providing resources, but also additional connections um, to the workforce development strategy world. So let's go ahead uh, advance to the next slide. Just a quick uh, review for us. Maybe the first time uh, some of our listeners have heard this, but you know, we started out with three objectives for the Workforce Futures Initiative. Um, we wanted to develop concise and actionable reviews of existing research of federal, state, and local uh, uh, policymakers uh, for uh, policymakers at those levels. Uh, we wanted to provide a forum for new policy ideas that are grounded in evidence. Um, there are a lot of people doing a lot of interesting work out there. Uh, it's not possible to capture all of it. So what we have been trying to focus on are those uh, areas where we could get a grip on uh, some evidence and, and research and evidence that really could substantiate um, our recommendations and, um, and, and provide a basis other than it feels like a good idea um, to do something um, because we know the resources are limited and we want to make sure that, um, that we're putting them to, to the best possible use. And then we wanted to identify priorities for new research on the future of work and the public workforce system. Um, there, the, it's one thing to say, here we are, uh, but what we wanted to try to do is to identify either gaps 
or areas where we thought there was some promise um, to uh, to uh, push out the frontiers of research uh, around workforce development. So, um, so far we've had four sessions and we've got a fifth scheduled um, for next week. Um, session one was on evaluating uh, state and federal workforce policies. What does the evidence actually tell us about what works? Um, the second one was on education and training uh, the landscape of research evidence, and we got into some of the particulars of evidence-based programs. The third session was on hidden workers, opportunity youth, veterans, and um, justice-involved individuals. The fourth was on um, adaptation of the workforce system to new paradigms of thinking about how to better prepare people for the workforce. And then next week, as I mentioned, uh, we've, we have a fifth session scheduled uh, looking at the labor shortage question and its interaction with workforce policy. So I'm going to kick this off and our, our method this morning is uh, each of us are going to be taking one topic area and uh, sort of providing a high level um, summary of, of our findings in that in the particular area that we're talking about. And then we want to have a conversation among the four of us to kind of uh, provide some of the nuances and some of the additional information from our conversation. And and uh, and then we'll move through the slide, these next four slides that way. As we're going, I encourage you to be sending Josh um, your questions, uh, uh, things that are on your mind uh, as you listen, observations that you have. Uh, and then at the end, what we'll do is go back to um, go back to those comments and uh, expand on uh, any of the answers that we need to provide or uh, reactions to any of the observations that you have. So that's our plan. Um, this is meant to be very conversational. Uh, I'm going to go through this slide and I encourage um, uh, my 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 co-steering committee members here. Um, to clarify as we go and to, uh, and to ask questions uh, and provide additional insights. So uh, my task this morning is to talk to you about uh, what we think um, the evidence tells us about the Workforce uh, Innovation Opportunity Act system and uh, the need for innovation within that system. So these are the things that we feel like we can say with a relative level of, of certainty uh, about what we see uh, in terms of the system performance. The results um, from the WIOA disadvantaged worker programs are positive, but they are also modest. Um, there is no evidence of positive results for the WIOA dislocated worker or youth programs that we were able to find and would point to as evidence that they are producing um, positive outcomes. Um, I think one of the ideas that has stuck with me from the very beginning um, is uh, something that Harry um, uh, told us uh, in the initial evidence review, which is that we appear to be stuck in a low resource, low efficacy equilibrium. So we're getting these modest benefits um, from the WIOA program for disadvantaged adults 
Um, but those modest, uh, modest benefits aren't enough to encourage higher levels of investment. Um, yet without additional fundings, additional funding for these programs, it's unlikely that we'll see a substantial improvement. It boils down to a, uh, a kind of a workforce policy catch-22 when it comes to WIOA. Do we have low results because uh, we're, not, we don't, we're not making a, a sufficient investment in the program and therefore discouraging uh, additional investments? Um, and I think this is a key question for us. So um, uh, uh, another observation from all this is that WIOA is a very small fraction of our overall um, investment as a country in training and workforce development. Um, there are uh, many other programs. I'm going to ask Harry to talk about this point in a little bit. Um, uh, one of them is that we don't at, at this point, um, you know, there's a lack of access for uh, Pell Grants around non-credit and short-term training that further complicates access to training services or reduces access to training services. But again, we owe as a very small piece of this and we've got all of these other elements um, that we need to be thinking about as well as we owe. One of, uh, what, uh, we, we published an op-ed yesterday under Harry's name uh, uh, on uh, the Forbes uh, magazine site, which covers um, some of this but um, we really believe that new investments should be focused on approaches like sectoral, sectoral training initiatives that we're going to be talking about here uh, on the next slide um, that have strong evidence of success, um, as well as things like job counseling and supportive services, um, things like housing, transportation, and childcare. Uh, and improvements to labor market information systems that Greg is going to be talking about in a little bit um, to strengthen these connections, right? All of these things are about strengthening connections between training opportunities and employment and individuals who are seeking training opportunities and employment. This connective, uh, connective tissue problem that we have is one of our biggest challenges. How do we connect people to the training and workforce opportunities that they need. Um, and so we really think uh, that's where we ought to be putting um, our new investments, if we have additional investments, is into these uh, approaches that we have this evidence that says this will help, this will produce better outcomes for workers. And then finally, I think um, our greatest need uh, is for innovation to model approaches for making the WIOA system more agile and responsive to changing labor market and workforce needs. Uh, we argue in, uh, in uh, the op-ed that went out yesterday uh, that states and localities need administrative flexibility uh, to experiment with alternative program structures that coordinate across organizational types, government, business, nonprofit, and worker types, um, dislocated workers, youth, justice involved, and others, um, supported by enhanced federal funding, uh, implementation support, in other words, technical assistance, and, and then evaluation to determine 
which of these state-led reforms should be replicated. Um, my view of this, and I open this after I'm done with this, I'll open this up to the panel, but my view is that our systems, um, uh, we can't reform from the top down um, on uh, uh, if we want to get innovation. Uh, we don't know enough about what's working to be able to say that we ought to do this overhaul of the entire system. What we do know is we've got a few things that work. We want to talk about those, but we also know what we what we need desperately, I think, is opportunities for some experimentation and innovation um, that will generate the kinds of reforms that could be replicated. Um, and uh, and so we argue uh, in in the op-ed and uh, in a for, uh, forthcoming papers on this that there are methods and ways of getting that kind of innovation started. Um, in terms of providing flexibility to states um, to reorganize with a lot more freedom than they have right now. Okay, so that's enough for me uh, on this. And I wanted to uh, give our panelists, uh, my other fellow panelists here, a chance to weigh in, uh, to expand on anything that I've said or anything I've left out um, that needs to be explained. So I'm going to um, I'm going to turn it over to them, and if they don't come up with some brilliant statement, I'm going to call them out and make them remind them of all of their brilliance and and have them come forward with their ideas. So who wants to go first? I'll take a stab, Brett, uh, under your threat of uh, of calling us out. Um, no, I, I agree with everything you've said. Uh, it's a nice summary. Um, you know, WIOA is a small part of the entire job training system in the United States. It's actually considerably smaller than what goes on, for instance, at community colleges. Uh, and and I, think, I think Rachel's gonna talk about that in a minute. Uh, there's job training monies and other programs. So it's a small piece and yet it's a critical piece because it's the one, it's supposed to be the glue that holds workforce development together in the United States. It's the one place where you have a program that's really devoted to worker assistance, worker services, and job training, where really any American can walk into one of the 3,000 one-stop shops around the country and get labor services, get job search assistance, get counseling, and maybe maybe a voucher for some training. But the problem is, number one, uh, uh, it's very, very underfunded. So for instance, there's less than $1 billion to fund job training for all disadvantaged adults in the United States, less than a billion dollars. If you compare that to, for instance, the pieces of Pell Grant that fund such training, it, it, it's a quite small amount. There's just over a billion for all dislocated or displaced workers, the people who lost their jobs because of trade or technology or things like that, less than a billion dollars for out-of-school youth. So these are really tiny amounts uh, to invest in job training, and by the way, and less than a billion dollars to fund those 3,000 job centers, the 3,001 stop. It's a very, very small amount of money. And yet it's almost impossible to make a case for more funding because the rigorous evaluation results have been, uh, I would say they have been at best very uneven. So as Brent said, most evaluations show positive impacts for disadvantaged adults who get these training vouchers, but the impacts are really quite small. Uh, no results for dislocated workers. We don't even have results for out-of-school youth. 
But when you think about it, perhaps part of the reason that the impact are so small is the dollars are so small. So the very few people who set foot in a one-stop actually get a training voucher, an individual training account. Those who get them, they're only worth on average a couple thousand bucks a piece, a couple thousand bucks, again, compared to what's needed and compared to what people get in the Pell Grant system uh, and from other funding sources, it's a very small amount. You really can't expect very much from it. Um, but as long as the impacts are as weak as they appear to be, it's simply, you, you know, it's just hard to make the case. So that's the catch 22 that, that Brent mentioned. Uh, um, and, and most of us, we're, we're not going to get a big infusion of money uh, given these results. And so we really have to try to do other things. Um, and, and one other thing I'll say, and then, and then let Rachel and Greg get in the conversation, the system is very fragmented as well. You have millions of people who go to community colleges and get job training uh, who never set foot in a one-stop and never get any of the services that are provided there. They go to community colleges, they get very little counseling there, very little job search assistance, but, but these pieces are often separate, uh, e even in local or regional labor markets. Uh, and, and that's a problem, I think, for the system as well. Uh, underfunding, underperformance, fragmentation uh, are all some of the things that we worry about. And I'll stop there. Harry, uh, queued up nicely. Um, we have a forthcoming project on workforce uh, white paper that will be released next Thursday on uh, on WIOA and on the eligible training provider list in particular. So I uh, wanted to tee that up for this uh, for our audience today to stay tuned. And I think it's going to hit on a lot of the points that Harry just previewed around um, some of these challenges around fragmentation, around the small amount of money that's involved, and also the challenge of doing things strategically when the whole system has been built on vouchers. So I'll, I'll share a, a quick figure from for you all, um, a preview for that work. There, um, from our analysis, there are over 75,000 programs um, nationally that are eligible for WIOA vouchers. Um, but of that, there's only about 220,000 people a year probably who receive those vouchers. So that means that each program um, on average is getting only about three WIOA participants um, per year as, as enrollees, um, which makes it really hard to do anything uh, at scale. And I can put my provider hat on for a little bit. I think I'm the only one in the group who uh, used to work at a, a workforce development organization. Um, I, I'm an alum of Europe, uh, spent some time at one of the best uh, organizations out there that has uh, randomized control trial results. And I know we're gonna talk in a little bit about the, the, the comparatively really strong evidence around sector-based training. But um, I think the challenge when you compare WIOA to uh, the workforce development providers that have worked is that um, like an organization like Europe, their, their recent evaluation, I think, cited that 2% of their money comes from uh, public funds. And if you think about the stats I just cited, if you're only getting three WIOA enrollees per year and the training vouchers average at about, uh, it's like $2,000 per trainee we spend federally, $6,000 in revenue, um, not a whole lot of, uh, not really a sustainable way of, of scaling or funding your operations. So I think one of the challenges, if we look at these evaluations of WIOA that have existed, 
they've looked at the impact of the pro of the program in aggregate and said what happened overall to everyone who came through the doors of our of our one-stop center some received training some didn't um, anyone the reality of anyone who's done training training knows is that training programs differ a lot they differ in terms of what they're training for they differ a lot in terms of the support services that they offer um, we know that wraparound supports matter a ton for completion they're also more expensive um, they matter in terms of how strongly they actually are working with employers or not. Um, and so one of the challenges in reading these evaluations is how do you differ between the programs um, that are good programs where federal money has gone and programs that um, are not so good and um, where these vouchers often have gone as well. So thinking, I think, um, for the, the next stage of, of systems reform um, for WIOA, but also for the system more broadly is how do we get more resources towards the training programs that work. Um, and I know our, our next segment of discussion is going to focus on that. I think that is a, a key uh, a key question. And there is a lot of challenges around the voucher system being the ex exclusive and only way to get there versus some of these more um, cohort-based models and other forms of sectoral employment where, uh, where the government might be providing resources to proven providers that have a track record of good results. Let me, uh, let me hand it to Greg and let him close this out. Yeah, no, I think we can see that the, the funding issue is the first order issue in some sense, but I'll just sort of second uh, Brent's comment that sort of innovation is probably most likely to come kind of from a bottom-up approach at the state and local level. And this is something we'll talk about a little bit also in the context of labor market information and, and new data and the way that new data sets are created and the way we understand what's going on in these programs. And uh, I think this is also something that's going to be sort of uh, best to prioritize from a kind of bottom-up uh, approach as well. So I'll just pass it back to uh, to Brent. Great. I mean, it, what strikes me out of all of your comments is, uh, you know, that we've got this, um, we've, got a, we've got a very significant challenge on our hands if we're talking about you know, the, the nature of the economy, which is extremely dynamic and change, you know, influx constantly changing in terms of skill demands and the need for a, a, lots of flexibility in terms of how people find training, uh, how they, you know, how they get that training uh, so that they can connect to in-demand employment. And that's where we're going uh, in the next segment. Uh, but but at the same time, and I think I heard Rachel say this, you know, we don't have, uh, it, it's it's very difficult to coordinate a strategy around flexibility. Um, and, uh, and so this is a, this is why I think, again, why we need this innovative, um, uh, a focus on innovation, because we have to solve that problem. How do we coordinate services and training and access to employment, uh, and and have it remain responsive and um, flexible, depending on local, um, yeah, economic, local and regional economic conditions. So let's go on to the uh, go on to the next slide, and I'm going to turn it over to Harry here uh, to talk about the evidence around uh, sectoral training strategies. Uh, thank you, Brent. Um, so. If, if the research evidence on the WIOA programs uh, has often been disappointing, the research evidence on what we call sector-based training uh, has been very positive and very encouraging. So I'll just take a, a couple of minutes to describe 
uh, that evidence and this kind of training. So, so first of all, what is sector-based training? Well, as the name implies, you start with some key sectors of the economy, uh, the most obvious ones being healthcare, IT, uh, advanced manufacturing, uh, transportation and logistics, and, and there are some others. These are high demand industries, growing industries, strong demand for workers. They provide good paying jobs for people without bachelor's degrees, jobs that pay what almost anybody would call a living wage. But the problem is you need, workers need a, a pretty strong skill set, often a very specific set of occupational and industry skills to, to get those good jobs uh, and to get that, that high pay. Um, the best examples of these programs, uh, some of the best known examples, uh, Rachel's already mentioned Gear Up. That's a program for disadvantaged high school graduates. Uh, it's a combination of six months of, of classroom training and six months of internship in, in a particular set of industries. Uh, a program called Perscolis started in New York, spread to other areas for disadvantaged adults and older youth, focusing on the IT sector. Uh, Project Quest. Uh, started in San Antonio and community colleges there and has spread elsewhere, heavy focus on healthcare uh, and some other sectors. And what makes this kind of training so special is that the evaluation results, rigorous evaluation uh, results from randomized trials uh, has been very strong. These programs generate large and lasting impacts on uh, the earnings of workers. Uh, when I say large, we're often talking about 30 to 40% increases in the earnings of, of low earning adults or youth. Uh, the impacts seem to last many years. Uh, some evaluations have shown impacts lasting anywhere from seven to 11 years and likely beyond that. So, so it's, it's great training with, with strong impacts. So then I asked the question, well, why? What makes this kind of training so successful? And it appears to be because the skills and credentials that the trainees get are very, very well aligned with what industry needs uh, in these high-paying jobs. You know, economists talk about the demand side and the supply side of the labor market, where the demand side is the employers, supply side are the, the workers. And so many training programs just train these workers and send them out as opposed to sector-based training where an intermediary has brought together the industry, the training providers, and worked out a, 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 a body of training, a curriculum of training, and a set of programs that really do meet the needs of these employers. It wins the confidence of employers and that makes it work well. Uh, some other positive aspects that there is soft skills training often integrated into the occupational training, which contributes to making the worker a productive one. Uh, some of the support services that we mentioned before uh, that are very critical for worker success and worker completion, childcare, transportation, uh, job market counseling and placement, they are provided in these programs. So the whole package is very positive. So you say, okay, well, all that sounds great. Then what are the limitations? Uh, I'd say there's two limitations. Number one, it's a fairly expensive kind of training. It's not unusual for each trainee needs $10,000, $12,000 in costs to get through one of these programs. And a lot of applicants are screened out. A lot of applicants are deemed not eligible uh, to be allowed into the program, either because their basic skills aren't strong enough uh, or they don't have basic pieces of work readiness. You know, maybe they have a substance problem. Maybe they've had other, other difficulties in their lives. 
but the basic skills. Some of these programs simply will tell you if, if, if an applicant is not reading or writing at the 10th grade level, they will not be successful in our program. They will not bring the basic skills needed. So it's the combination of the high costs and the screening out of a lot of people creates small programs uh, that work extremely well. So the major challenges that are pretty obvious, number one, how do you replicate and scale these very small successful programs while trying to maintain quality? For instance, you know, since so many millions of workers get their training at community colleges, how can we take the essence of these programs and build them into the institutions that can reach you know, the hundreds of thousands or millions of workers who, who need that kind of training. How can we reduce the cost to make it more scalable? Maybe some of this training can be done online and done more efficiently. And how do we make this stuff more accessible to the workers who are currently screened out because they don't have basic job readiness, they don't have strong enough basic skills. Um, so if we really want to move the needle in workforce outcomes for the country, these are some of the challenges we have to face to take these little gems of programs and see if we can expand them uh, in a way that helps a lot more people than they do right now. So I, I, I'd really like to hear, Rachel, as a, as a graduate uh, of Europe, as a, somebody who knows that program intimately, what does that what do, what do Harry's comments sort of provoke in you uh, in terms of what it looks what it looks like going through one of these programs uh, from the inside? Thanks, Brent. Um, and I should clarify. Maybe I was sloppy in my own wording too. I, I used to work at Europe. I'm uh, there's also an amazing, vibrant uh, Europe uh, alumni community of graduates of the program who have gone on and done amazing things in the world. Uh, sadly, don't count myself uh, as part of that, yeah. although I think uh, there's lots that I, I wish my uh, undergraduate experience in college had adapted from uh, Europe in terms of thinking about what happens in the labor market and um, uh, the skills that you're going to need for work. So, um, look, I, I think a lot of what Harry says is, is, uh, is really spot on as we zoom out and think about what it will take to um, scale what's been learned from sector-based training programs like Europe and make it more possible for more people in this country. Um, uh, the, the exciting thing, and I don't wanna, uh, wanna make sure we don't gloss over it, is that what these programs have shown is that training, when coupled with the right set of supports, can work for, um, for uh, particularly for low-income adults, um, and for um, for people who have traditionally struggled to access upward opportunities in the labor market. And that's no that's like not a small statement because I think for many years in this space there was a lot of skepticism about why should we spend uh, any money on on job training because uh, we don't have proof that it, it can work. And, and now we have a very, I think robust, body of evidence that when it, if you couple um, if you couple the right things and the right um, the right sets of strategies both for working with the, the students as well as working with the employers in the community that um, these programs can and have worked and should be given the resources to uh, sustain and multiply because the returns for the taxpayer are um, unambiguously positive in terms of lifetime um, lifetime return on investment and 
in terms of tax revenues and benefits for society. So, so, so I just want to double click on that point. Um, Harry, I think, has captured, I think, a lot of the challenges that organizations like this are thinking about inside, which is um, so much of what they've done and the, their success is not just about the classroom training and what you what you learn from an instructor, but instead from all of the other types of life things that um, may get in the way from, from you being able to start training, complete, and then successfully transition on the job. And a lot of those things are expensive. They are our human supports of a whole kind of cohesive community that's there to uh, make sure that you can persist and complete the training program and actually realize the return. So um, as we as we move forward, I think on the research side, one of the next frontiers and really exciting parts is these programs have a lot of different components that that Harry laid out. There's the piece on investing in employer relations and having a team that really, really works closely with um, employers in the community to understand the skills that are going to be required to secure placements after completion of training. People do these programs because they know that there is a job on the other side. And if you if you remove that part of the equation, I think the attraction is um, a lot less uh, a lot less substantial. Um, the, the, all of the focus on, on soft skills and what it's going to take to, um, to succeed in the labor market after completion. I think from a research perspective, one of the things that's exciting is how do we understand which of these things are most important and, and why? And because that will tell us a lot about for the future of policy in this area is how do we prioritize? You could do a million things you may wind up having a really uh, a really expensive program that, that then therefore is not scalable. So I'm interested in following the research on this topic, particularly on um, understanding out of that whole bundle of services, which pieces really, really matter. Um, there's also a lot of interesting thinking in this space right now around the length and duration of these programs. Uh, Harry mentioned Europe is historically um, a one-year program in a really strong labor market that we have right now for low-wage workers, I think a lot of young people and others are saying, "A year is a long time. I don't know that I can, um, I can, I can take a year to go and do training." And so, what's the minimum amount of time that will be required to see the kinds of results that a program um, like Europe has delivered? I, I have some questions about this. I think you probably do need some substantial amount of time learning new skills, but figuring out the right duration. Uh, and, and one other thing I'll mention here, too, that I, I'm not sure if Harry laid out is that a lot of these programs like Europe um, historically have offered um, stipends while you learn. Um, and this is a growing uh, a growing dynamic that we're seeing in the in the field of sector based training. Again, given how strong uh, the low wage labor market has been right now, if you can make twenty two dollars an hour at Target, it becomes a really hard proposition to say, I'm going to drop out of the labor market, go do training full time and make no money and be unable to um, to support my my family and my dependents. And so just to be competitive and attracting both young people and older adults into these programs, the programs that are able to offer some financial support um, while you do uh, while you do the training, either from the employer or from the government or from nonprofits are at are at an advantage. And so I do think it's time from a public policy perspective, how we think about updating um, some of our uh, priors on this, where government has historically been very reluctant to, um, 
to use public funds to pay for training stipends. But if people are, are not going to be able to stay in and complete otherwise, um, they actually can become a really critical component of why these programs work. That's excellent. Thanks, um, Rachel. Um, Greg, I want to give you a chance to get in here too. Uh, I, I just wanted to kind of add this additional challenge, which is the kind of economic development side of things, right? So uh, these sector-based training programs are sort of uh, assume the existence of these, you know, fast-growing sectors. And, you know, a lot of it is, you know, that's just sort of a separate issue too, which is the economic development perspective. How do we bring these sectors to these areas um, and make it so that the training is, is going to be uh, useful and effective? And, and again, it's in some sense a separate issue, but you know, it's kind of a good opportunity to, to somewhat to, to plug uh, Rachel's future position, which is she's moving on to uh, to work on the implementation of the CHIPS uh, Act. And the CHIPS Act, you know, so it's sort of this industrial strategy perspective, which is in some ways complementary, I think, to these sector-based training programs, because that's the other side of the coin, right? That's the, the demand side um, of this process, which is creating these jobs and, and uh, setting people up to um, exploit and leverage uh, these training programs. So, um, yeah, just wanted to add that sort of additional and big challenge uh, that we face here. So I had just a couple uh, additional thoughts. Um, first, um, uh, on the replication and scaling point, um, there's an awful lot that goes, uh, that goes on in terms of training that gets called uh, sector, sectoral strategies, sector-based training. Um, but we're talking about a very specific program model um, that has been, uh, or models, I should say, it's more than one model, but uh, that have been rigorously evaluated. And I think it's really um, one of the initial uh, steps in the scaling process, I think, is, you know, clarifying what we mean when we say sectoral strategy, that it does include the soft skills training, that it does include uh, the supportive services and the job counseling and these um, well-developed networks of employers, um, and then trying to do what we can to educate the overarching system, not just WIOA, but community colleges and apprenticeship and you know uh, uh, other technical training programs that not everything that calls itself sectoral uh, training strategies is what we're talking about here. Um, these are intensive, expensive. Uh, I would argue to Harry's point that, you know, going from uh, between eight and $9,000, which is, I think is what we typically spend um, at least on the uh, disadvantaged um, uh, youth side of uh, which the one that I'm most familiar with, it's it's typically been in that range. You know, if if we had programs that could deliver results for an additional three thousand dollars per person, that feels like to me uh, a much better result than spending the nine thousand and not getting anything um, or getting very little uh, out of. Uh, out of our current investments. So um, when we think about, you know, the, the value
think we may be uh, losing Brent it's on, other side, on the other side too. Yes, I, I can't hear him either. Uh, which is uh, which is sad because I think he was making a <laughs> very compelling case for uh, why we may need to spend more to see better to see better results, which is uh, always a great argument to hear from AI. So uh, I can maybe we can exchange a few thoughts. Uh, any other additional thoughts on sector-based training? Which is I think one of the challenges here for for um, public policy has been. I talked a little bit about how much of WIO is spending on training is through vouchers. And um, these programs, um, in some ways, are going to, we, we need new streams of funding that can support programmatic operations for proven providers that we don't currently have a lot of right now. We've done a lot of kind of, we have some competitive grant opportunities that have supported models like this, um, whether it was the uh, trade adjustment assistance uh, for community college program or the good jobs challenge or um, back in, in the early days of the Obama administration, the social innovation fund. But uh, right now there's not, um, I would argue, not a, not a lot of formula funding that can strategically go and go towards investing and scaling these programs. I'm curious, though, if you agree with that take, Harry, Harry and Greg. I, I, I do. I do. I think the funding is, is very limited. But the flip side of the coin, I think, and I think Brent alluded to this, is just because we call something sectoral doesn't mean it has the quality uh, of a project quest or a per scholas. And, and I think there are, and, and that's why it is so important to isolate exactly what makes those programs so special. I've, I've seen a lot of sector-based programs in a number of community colleges that are much, much less impressive, and, and some of them do have weaker results. So it really is, you know, getting it right. How do you do it the right way? Uh, and how do you get the resources targeted to exactly those things that work? Yeah, um, sorry, I had a little uh, a, a, a little technological problem there. Uh, uh, and I, I'll, I'll close this out on this topic so we can move on, but, um, just to say that uh, I, th I think that um, there are strategies and to to encourage the adoption of things that we have a, a, at least an idea that they work in terms of sectoral strategies in the way that we fund um, uh, federal grants. And uh, Rick Hendra and I are working on a paper on sector-based training uh, uh, from MDRC, Rick from MDRC, who really understands this in great depth. He and I have partnered around this to talk about some ways of driving dollars toward uh, effective practice um, so that to the extent that we are investing new money in, in sector-based training, that we're actually investing in the stuff that at least looks like the things that we, we think work rather than um, sort of a all comers approach, um, anybody who's got something um, that says sector based on it. So let's move on to the next um, to the next uh, piece of this conversation is around community colleges and Rachel, uh, you're up. Thanks. Great. Thanks, Brent. And uh, yeah, really excited to see that paper. I think it's going to it's a great example of uh, of this initiative and the kinds of things we can help push forward. Um, I think the thoughtful pairing of um, someone like Rakendra and Brent to 
to think about what how we take what we've learned from the evidence and translate that into policy is exactly the kind of thing we've been hoping to achieve. So uh, I'll, I haven't read it yet, but I'll <laughs> pitch it and be, I'm excited to uh, to check it out. All right, I, I'm going to be pretty brief here because I'm excited for us also to leave a little time at the end to um, to exchange with uh, with the folks who called in. Um, uh, we've spent a lot of time over the last year and a half um, talking about community colleges, um, in part, in large part, because I would argue that they, in a lot of ways, are the most important institution and player um, in determining whether the American workforce system works or will work or, or can work because they have the most substantial um, infrastructure, the most substantial investment. Um, they are everywhere in America, pretty much every community. Um, they also, if you, if you think about the post-secondary landscape, they serve the most socioeconomically diverse segments of the U.S. population, and they also um, uh, racially serve um, the most diverse segments and representative segments of the U.S. population, and they, and uh, older adults, working parents, uh, immigrants, etc. This is where people historically have come to, to seek out workforce training. So um, they, they are and will continue to be critical. Um, the evidence base here, uh, I'd say is a lot more, is a lot larger than um, what we've seen on WIOA. There's a, a much uh, uh, more substantial body of evidence and, and papers and um, uh, literature out there that it's hard to give you a a two-minute summary of, but um, uh, one thing I'll say is that there's a lot of heterogeneity um, in the in the in this context of this group in our conversations. We focused a lot of our review on um, workforce-focused programs at community colleges, which, to be clear, are not um, not at all the exclusive mission of community colleges. In a lot of cases, they uh, and in a lot of states actually. Um, more liberal arts focused programs and general studies, AAs, et cetera, are extremely common and um, uh, in some ways uh, receiving um, equal, if not more attention. But, but we focus our conversation in a lot of ways on what community colleges can do for workforce. Um, and we see um, overall a lot of positive signals that community college um, programs can deliver. Uh, positive earnings impacts and, and lifetime earnings impacts, but this this varies depending on institution. It varies depending on programs, um, and a lot of, and and in particular also on completion, whether someone actually um, finishes the program, which has historically been a, a challenge for a lot of community colleges. Um, some of the strongest results in the literature have been in fields like um, in healthcare and community college nursing programs. Really strong literature around. Um, returns to those investments, as well as other types of technical and IT fields. Um, I'll let Harry, I think, speak a little more um, to what he's seen of types of occupations and, and programmatically what seems to work. Um, we also know, though, that community colleges have often struggled with um, providing the type of supportive services and wraparound supports that we just spoke about were so critical for the success of the sectoral employment programs. Um, but there is some promising uh, evidence out there that when they invest in these things, they 
have a substantial significant impact on both completion and post-graduation outcomes. Um, the most notable um, study that's often discussed in this, this space is an evaluation of CUNY's ASAP program where students received extra supports, including from counselors and from um, Metro cards um, uh, and had uh, uh, positive ROIs, statistically significant impact on, on completion. Um, and then another, I think, a, a big theme that we've discussed over the last 18 months that um, where I'd say the evidence base is a bit more nascent, but the public policy uh, momentum is strong and um, lots of energy right now is about the role of shorter term credentials in community colleges. Uh, uh, survey evidence of workers shows, as I was discussing earlier, that a lot of workers are are interested in non-degree options. They want shorter programs, um, but historically, we have not had a, a funding stream to um, specifically support community colleges in providing those types of work, uh, those types of programs. And so I think on the research side, there's a huge need right now to understand which of these programs work and why if they do, so we can understand how we best invest in, um, uh, in supporting the, the growing appetite of workers to pursue um, new types of curriculum at community colleges that uh, connect directly to, not just, just to a first job, but to upper mobility and careers. So um, that's, a, that's my quick summary. Um, I'll pass it over to my colleagues, um, Greg, Harry, and Brent. I know have all done a lot of work in, ex in this space and excited to, hear, uh, excited to hear their take here. Um, just because my internet keeps going in and out, let me, while I'm in, let me say something, which is um, I was really taken uh, and uh, impressed in the session that we had on community colleges. Uh, just uh, how large these institutions often are, how many students they are attracting, even though enrollment's down a little bit, I think, uh, and how scarce the resources are that that we would think about in terms of encouraging completion. Uh, the helping students sort of find their way through the community college system um, is uh, is is quite limited. We want, for good reason, I think, we want to put a lot of money toward training, but we don't have the um, systems in place to help people navigate. Uh, and with uh, some kids in this age uh, bracket, I can tell you that they would greatly benefit, not just at the community college level, but also at the college and university level, uh, from more resources to help them figure out which ways up um, when it comes to pursuing training. And uh, in the case of uh, you know, Northern, the Ann Cross from the Northern Virginia Community College, you know, she talked about how they have uh, essentially one uh, counselor, job counselor and training counselor in this case uh, for about every thousand students. And that, that really, that struck me, has stayed with me that that's almost worse than doing nothing. Um, uh, because it's just impossible um, uh, in a system as large as Northern Virginia Community College system to have much of an impact with that kind of ratio. And I'll, I'll add a few thoughts here. Um, and I, I mostly want to focus on Rachel's point number four, 
uh, about not-for-credit and short-term programs. So two issues. Number one, we have much, much less evidence on the non-credit side. You know, the vast majority of our data from states are on for-credit programs. We have a lot of research on for-credit, very little on not-for-credit. Um, I wrote a report a couple of years ago with, with Sandy Baum and Grace Lutworth, the Urban Institute, where we did have one data set, the American Training and Employment Survey, uh, providing some credit, uh, some, some, some data non-credit, and the impacts are weaker than in the four-credit side. Shorter-term programs, they're weaker than medium or long-term. There's very high variance. Some of the stuff works uh, and, and some doesn't. That, that, that's true about everything, but it's especially true in this realm. And, there, and there's a fear, I think, about if you start opening the floodgates of higher ed money, how do you make sure the money, go, again, goes to programs that, that have real value added and that work? And, you know, there's just as there's very, very little money in WIOA, there's a ton of money in the Higher Ed Act, and especially what we call Title IV for Pell Grants and federal loans. But the money is restricted now by three rules. Uh, number one, it has to be at an accredited higher ed institution. It's got to be a four academic program, and it's got to be not terribly short term, like at least six months in length. Um, maybe those rules are too limiting. And, and we know that there's been an effort for a number of years, a, a bipartisan effort by Senators Tim Kaine and Rob Portman, former Senator Rob Portman, to try to weaken some of those rules around Pell and around Title IV and to make that money more available for short term. And even for some not for credit, I have some sympathy for that effort. And yet, how do you make sure that you have what's what's going to be the form of accountability once you pry open that door for the non-accredited institutions, the not for credit programs to make sure that the money is well spent uh, and, and not, you know, there is there are a lot of actors in this space, uh, especially in the for profit space that do not appear to generate very good value added for the money. Uh, and so how do you separate out that wheat and that chaff if you open up, uh, open the gates and allow more programs to come through? So it's a very important issue. Uh, some, some community colleges, and Rachel knows a lot about this, are making innovative efforts to try to, to, try to braid for credit money with other things. I mean, we talk about some of those funding innovations, but to me, that's the key dilemma in all this. Uh, you were right. muted, but I think you asked if I had something. Yes, to add. I, did. Sorry. I, I don't have too much to add. I would only say, and I, I, this is something I won't talk about this much later. But um, Rachel had mentioned that um, you know there's this huge body of research, and this huge body of research on community colleges and and really on the four credit programs um, has benefited a lot from these uh, data sets that have linked you know community college. Uh, student records with a UI worker information. And so, you know, it's really on over the past sort of decade that states have started to do this. And this has been a huge value add. I mean, this has given us, you know, really new insights into um, the way that these different programs translate into um, short and long-term uh, employment outcomes. So um, I think that's been really valuable. And so while there is a lot of heterogeneity in student outcomes, um, I think we actually have a decent grasp on um, on that heterogeneity and what types of programs are successful and, and what sort, sort of programs are not. 
It's a great call out, Greg, but, and it also, I think, um, illuminates though on the flip side that we don't have that data or information on the non-credit side. And it's a huge, it's a huge gap as we move forward into this, the new frontier that, that Harry described, just how do we, um, because we, uh, the iPad system does not collect, um, any information on non-credit programs. And we, we don't have right now a good way of tracking completers of, um, non-credit this, this seems like something that, that higher ed and the research community together will have to tackle if we are to be able to understand how these investments going forward, whether they work and, and whether they don't and, and why and under what conditions. Well, this is a great segue to you, Greg, uh, in terms of our labor market information discussion. So why don't you go ahead and uh, talk about what we're learning there. Yeah, well, we had a great uh, panel on labor market information in our last uh, WFI session. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was in particular, I think it was nice because we had um, a great representative from sort of the groups that are a group that is producing these private uh, data sets. We had Matt uh, Siegelman from the Burning Glass Institute. And uh, and then we had good representation from uh, those who are, have been uh, responsible in many ways for some of the publicly available data sets that have come out in the last few years and uh, continue to be uh, created uh, right now. So, um, yeah, so we had Matt Siegelman from, from the Burning Glass Institute, and then we had Julia Lane from NYU and the Coleridge Initiative talking about uh, some of the efforts that she's been making uh, to not only to kind of produce uh, new uh, public data sets, you know, from linking things across um, the government agencies, census and Bureau of Labor Statistics, but um, also increasing access to these data sets um, for researchers and policymakers. And, uh, and then we also had Jason Palmer uh, from the Chicago region BLS, and he was talking a little bit about um, some of the regional efforts uh, to improve uh, data availability. Um, so first, I'll just say a little bit uh, to begin with about uh, kind of summarizing, I think, Matt Siegelman's comments, which were, first of all, of course, you know, the value of some of these, uh, you know, private data sets, like really what I'm thinking of here and is, you know, the job postings data, uh, the resumes data, uh, this type of really granular and high frequency data. And, uh, you know, I think Matt's main point, which is a good one, I agree with, is that, uh, you know, a lot of what's been done so far is effectively descriptive, right? You can take these data sets are really, they're so new and they're so, um, you know, potentially informative um, that there's just been a lot of just digging into the data and understanding from a kind of counting perspective, uh, the types of insights that they can provide. Um, but really the next step that he, you know, and, and others have, have already done some of this, but the next step is really um, using these data as inputs into, you know, more sophisticated economic modeling exercises and using them to understand you know, some of the things that economists and, and others have been exploring uh, for a long time, you know, the, the nature of structural changes and their impacts on the workforce and, uh, new, you know, how will technology affect workers, uh, but doing all of these things at a much more local level and, you know, potentially also at a, at a much more high frequency level. Um, and so, you know, the potential value here is, is huge. Um, so these these types of data sets, I think, are going to be you know they're they're already used very widely. They're going to be used uh, even more and more increasingly sophisticated ways. Um, but this was a nice uh, discussion because it's sort of you, now we can kind of contrast that uh, with some of the innovations in publicly available data, 
um, or public data sets um, like Census and Bureau of Labor Statistics. And uh, Julia Lane um, has been really at the forefront of uh, linking uh, data sets, creating new data sets, um, and uh, pushing for wider access to those data sets. Um, so I think her main takeaway, which again, I agree with, is uh, that a lot of the innovation that's happening at that level is happening at the local and state level and should be happening at that level and will continue to happen at that level. And, and largely because uh, state and local governments have their own priorities and, and they understand you know, what, where the value of uh, this, these linking exercises um, are gonna come from. Uh, so uh, she, gave, she gives lots of examples about the way that state and local governments are, are sort of exploiting data sets and bringing them together in innovative ways uh, to produce uh, policy insights that are useful for those regions. And then, you know, from there, once the, you have these kind of local or, or state level uh, data linking exercises, they can be, can, uh, be made more widely available to researchers, or they can be harmonized and uh, integrated into more national uh, types of uh, data access processes. Um, one important point that she made that I, that, I, that I wanted to make sure I mentioned is that um, a lot of these data have become more widely available to researchers and policymakers. In part, that's because of technological innovation. Uh, we can, you know, the the advent of all of this remote access um, has happened very quickly, of course, because of the pandemic, and so now researchers can access a much wider range of data. But um, at the same time, there's been really important uh, changes to the legal environment or sort of more innovative legal structures um, to facilitate these data linking projects um, as well. And that's been really important. Um, the last thing is, again, from this bottom-up perspective of um, where are new data uh, sets going to come from and, and how are they going to uh, inform policymaking? I think Jason Palmer from the BLS was, gave some really uh, interesting examples of these demonstration projects that they are um, kind of instigating and promoting uh, in the Chicago region um, where uh, policymakers can kind of propose uh, data linking projects that they think would help them to um, inform the policy decisions that they're making. And then um, some of the data uh, providers can go off and, and perform those linking projects and, and see how they work and use them as demonstrations for how um, in new innovative data sources can, can inform policy. So um, that's kind of a lot of stuff, but let me just stop there and, and pass it to my colleagues here. So um, the, the name that's come up a couple times in your presentation is Julia Lane, um, and she's actually working on a paper, two papers for us. One, uh, really looking at this question of how we can incentivize and support these local slash regional uh, state and regional uh, collaboratives. Um, and that that paper should be, we should be able to post that to the WFI site shortly. And I think it's really provocative uh, in terms of reimagining labor market information away from kind of a federal, cent a centralized federal approach and more toward uh, a regional uh, decentralized uh, approach that's more responsive to local economic conditions and can be more made more relevant to local education training planning and economic integration with the economic development that you mentioned earlier, Greg. Um, so uh, uh, 
that's kind of um, one thing I just want to put on people's radars is that uh, we are going to be uh, push, uh, putting that paper out soon. The, the second project that I've engaged uh, Julia on is the use of artificial intelligence uh, for um, uh, this is a massive data project. And that's what AI is supposed to be able to do um, is to manage masses of data and coordinate it better and pull out the patterns um, that are actionable. So we're looking forward to that conversation with her um, as well as move forward on this project. I'll just add one one quick comment to all this because Greg did a really nice job summarizing uh, what we know and where things were headed. And Brett, you just mentioned AI. Uh, AI will be great for data systems, but it, it will likely cause a lot of displacement of workers uh, and a lot of skill obsolescence. A lot of workers who got great training uh, of the kind we've described may find those skills obsolete uh, as, 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 in a, as automation takes off in the future. We're going to need much better data to understand that process, to really understand in, 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 a, in a world of automation uh, who gets retrained for other work or who gets displaced for those displaced people, where do they come back in? And Julia has talked a lot about this. Uh, what kinds of skills do people need to get reemployed uh, in a decent job uh, without a long period of time? So, so as we look to the future, I, I think that having good data will be more critical than ever before. Uh, and, and it will have to be much better data uh, of the kind Greg described to really give us insight uh, into these issues. I'll just add quickly a, a final word, um, maybe from a different angle, which is about how do we make labor market information a little more human-centered for, for the end users. Um, I, I've often found that a lot of the, the conversation around LMI um, hasn't been as focused on, like, how do we actually imagine that a worker takes this, this information and is, is able to usefully deploy it in making decisions about jobs and careers and training and education. Um, and so I, I'm kind of interested as we head into the next generation of reforms, um, whether it be real or reauthorization or, or such, like how do we ensure that we don't equate um, some of the metrics that we use to understand system performance with and just turn those back towards here's information for workers that will be useful to them. I think a lot about these like quarterly one and quarterly three earnings metrics, for instance, of trying to understand programs is not really that useful for people who are trying to make that make that decision. And so how do we get more feedback from workers themselves about what kind of labor market information is useful to them and in, in what forms and put some focus and effort towards translating this information in ways that consumers can actually um, take it, make sense of it, um, and hopefully uh, utilize it for better decision-making. Okay, let's, uh, let's move on. We want to uh, just for a second show you the website. This is live as of this morning, so um, please go look at it. But just very briefly, uh, what you'll find on this, um, on this page is or on the on the website is the ability to access the right now the information 
from the previous sessions in terms of transcripts of the four workforce innovation, I'm sorry, workforce futures initiative conversations, as well as the PowerPoints of the presenters and uh, summaries written uh, by the members of the steering committee um, that kind of pull out the key lessons and learning um, from those sessions. So I would encourage you to visit. Uh, you can also sign up on this webpage to be able to receive updates as we load upload new uh, research to it that we, we've commissioned from a variety of authors, including, uh, including some who have been mentioned here this morning. Uh, uh, you'll be able to, you'll get updates that papers are available and um, and be able to access them on a, on a variety of topics. Uh, so that that's kind of, we're not going to do like a walkthrough here, but I just wanted to just show you, uh, this is what you should be looking for. The link there is at the bottom and encourage you to go in and sign up uh, to get the, um, the email updates. So here we are at the discussion. Uh, lots of good questions coming in. Um, and I think what I'd like to do uh, is start um, we've got a, an interesting question here and I, that we've we've debated internally actually um, about the uh, on sectoral training about the issue of screening out or creaming um, and I think it would be helpful if we kind of went into that a little bit. Uh, I've got some thoughts on it, but I'd like to give uh, give Harry and Rachel and Greg the first sort of bite at this apple. How, how big a concern is this? Well, um, so the question from Howard Husak is, why, why do we talk about it so much? Shouldn't we be happy just to be helping the people who are capable of, of, of successfully using help? And, and, and Howard, you're exactly right about that. Uh, there are likely hundreds of thousands of people out there right now who do have the work readiness and the basic skills to benefit from these programs, uh, and we are nowhere near providing enough scale in these programs to meet that need. So absolutely, it would be a great thing to scale up for the people who can use it uh, uh, and, and, and right now and, and aren't getting it. Having said that, there's another issue in my experience uh, in this world that often comes up, uh, and you have some of, my, some of my friends, I would say more in the progressive community, who have the view that when you're allocating resources, you allocate resources according to people's needs. I know there's an historical antecedent for that point of view, but that's a view. You know, for, for people who, with the weakest skills, they should get most of the dollars to bring them up to, to speed. And at one level, from a justice point of view, we like that point of view. But from an effectiveness point of view in workforce training, it, it just doesn't work. Too many of those people with the most barriers and with the least job readiness simply aren't in position to take advantage of these kinds of programs. So, so both those things are true simultaneously. We need a lot more resources and a better knowledge of scaling up for the people who can take advantage, as well as probably other things, maybe subsidized employment for the people who likely would not be ready. And, and, and there's a real question of how do we stretch these programs? So if the program administrator is saying, I can't use anyone below the 10th grade level, are, are the ways of bringing people a little below that level up to the starting line so they can benefit and, and doing that in a cost-effective way? 
so, so these are just some of the challenges, I think, uh, in, in trying to do all this. Rachel? Um, look, I guess this was one of these terms that when I came back more deeply in the research community, I was like, what are they talking about this screening out? Because uh, if, if you talk to the admissions folks at, at Europe, I, I don't really, I don't think they perceive that that's um, what they're doing in, in the admissions process. Instead, um, it's, it's a pretty open door um, policy with some basic conditions that they've set around who's eligible to apply. And then a lot of what happens is like expectation setting um, from the time that you express interest to enrollment in the program is a bit of a longer tail here where they're tr where you're trying to test out does someone have the interest, commitment, perseverance, dedication to be able to make it through the program and set the right norms around that. So it's not necessarily so much of a hard skill test, but instead really trying to get at that um, some of these uh, motivational questions because they they only want people to um, make that commitment who uh, are going to be able to see it through because everything everything we know, again, the last thing that we want is for people to start training programs and then drop out of them and have nothing at the end to um, to show for them in terms of, of credentials or, or better earnings potential. I guess one of the things I've been struck by and like the focus on this in the research community is it, it does seem to me a little bit um, not as aligned with what I hear from practitioners on the ground, which is that uh, everyone has been everyone has been struggling to fill their seats in this um, in this environment uh, because of because there are a lot of um, there's the gig economy. There are a lot of better paying jobs that don't require additional skill attainment that are available with with wages that have been growing, which I think is a good thing. Um, training providers are actually just having a hard time, like making the case to uh, to people why they should forego some earnings in the short term to make this longer term uh, investment in their human capital. So to me, that is actually like the bigger um, challenge we should be focused on is why are people finding it so hard to go and invest in, in training in the first place? And is there something um, fundamentally structurally wrong about the way we've been doing training. If we're in a lot of cases, we've been asking people to train for jobs that maybe don't have um, a good tail end uh, upper mobility trajectory, and they're making a pretty rational choice to um, stay out of training altogether. And that's that's to the detriment of the country. If we think that our our competitive advantage in the 21st century is going to be that we um, outscale and outtrain and uh, build the best the best human potential that we can in the world. We need to find ways to um, incentivize and keep more people in in good quality training. So I guess I would just be like I'm a little more focused on that question than I am on like who are we um, holding out of training right now? Is like how do we bring more people in and what's it going to take to make them successful in those environments? Greg, did you have anything you wanted to add? No, those were two excellent perspectives. I don't have anything to add, thanks. Okay. I mean, the only thing I would add uh, on the on the creaming question was, I, I recall that when uh, Larry Katz was uh, providing his overview of the, of the evaluation uh, of sectoral training, 
um, he was actually uh, quite uh, adamant, firm at least, that we that we need not worry about this for the reasons I think that Harry and uh, and Rachel already um, have already uh, articulated. In addition to which, uh, I thought it was an important point that he made that these programs add substantially to the diversity of our workforce. Uh, they are providing opportunities for individuals in disadvantaged communities to uh, reach that escape velocity from uh, low-wage jobs. And that in itself, I think, is a huge benefit to Howard's point in his question. You know, we need now to be focusing on providing uh, opportunity to those in disadvantaged communities who are best positioned to take advantage of it, in part because of the longer term impact that those people can have uh, in terms of providing, um, you know, uh, plausible pathways um, uh, in their own communities, examples of how this how this works. So um, I, I tend to agree here that that this um, this question of, you know, uh, the, the justice side of this needs not to overwhelm our, our sense of doing a lot of good um, uh, or a lot of good that can be done um, through these programs. Uh, so um, we have a couple other questions here um, relating to uh, problems within the WIOA system uh, are we really getting um, much of a benefit um, from the WIOA system? What about reforming the WIOA system? Um, I'll just say from my standpoint that I, I agree with the sentiment here uh, in terms of, you know, uh, we do have these, these sort of very modest um, uh, result, positive results for one segment of uh, WIOA funded programs. Uh, disadvantaged adults, uh, um, but that we really ought to be doing better, um, even with our limited resources. And I think the pathway to getting to better on this does not involve a full-scale uh, reform of WIOA from the top down. Like I said, I think what we need to do is to incentivize and, and enhance uh, the resources and administrative flexibilities that are available to states to be able to build systems that meet their needs, what, what they view as their own needs. And the example I always go back to here is uh, the state of Utah's um, workforce reform, which has taken 30 years of work to realign uh, and to um, uh, create the efficiencies and the um, you know, the elimination of redundant bureaucracies and infrastructures to drive more resources toward workers so they can get the training and supports that they need in order to reach self-sufficiency. That's why I think uh, our energy is best spent not in trying to adjust the dials on the existing system, although I think there are some things that we can do and we should do, but our real energy should be focused on how we can incentivize uh, reform uh, and an innovation uh, at at the state and regional the state local regional levels rather than thinking that somehow we can redesign um, the system from the top and hope to get to a good result 
So I hope that answers uh, the the several questions um, that we that we got uh, uh, relating to um, relating to that. I don't know if anybody else has thoughts on uh, in re in response to this um, this challenge of the sort of the clunkiness and uh, of the existing workforce innovation opportunity act. Just one quick comment, Brent, on your idea of incentives for state and local actors and for regional actors. You know, so one example of that uh, was the, the, the TACT grants that were giving out during the Obama years, uh, focused on community colleges, but very much for the community college to improve the quality of the regional system and to work better with economic development, actors, uh, the workforce system. And, and that's one example, I think, uh, of, of it, it's a competitive grant structure, whether they should do that or make something more formula, but something more incentive-based, uh, I think, at the regional level for community colleges and workforce folks and economic development folks to, to better use what's already out there. Um, and, and that would just, just be one example of incentivizing, I think, that kind of innovation, at least some version uh, of that once again. I'll just I'll just add a quick word on the qu comments on the AJCs and um, lots of interesting discussion percolating in our chat here. Uh, I, I do think that there's some low hanging fruit around technology investments in the workforce system that are long overdue. So it, um, during the pandemic, we've seen a lot of uh, you know, the hood was pulled off on UI that are the systems we've been using are are ancient and creaky. Unfortunately, we didn't see the same kind of focus on um, on the, the job center side and on, um, you know, the, the training list and the state websites for um, for workforce services. Uh, it's hard to imagine a world where we we can. Um, leverage technology better to do some of these self-service objectives that are set out in the legislation if we are trying to do them on 25-year-old um, data systems. So I, I guess I'm very interested in the push for modernization to start moving into the, the 21st century because it's hard to ask states to do these things without any resources to support upgrading the, the underlying um, technological infrastructure that will be required to think differently and more innovatively about how we best serve um, the most people. Right. And just to keep up, not even keep up, uh, to, to stop falling even further behind uh, the general trend of technological innovation that's going on in the rest of the economy. I mean, um, we are, uh, we're already probably decades behind uh, the the leading edge, which will, you know, it's government's never not likely to ever get there, but uh, that that continuing lag in in the technological systems um, can't help but sort of end up reading out of the conversation. Uh, uh, the, are the you know the the publicly funded workforce system. Um, it's just not it's. It struggles for relevancy now, and I think it will struggle for relevancy even more if we don't um, if we don't make the necessary investments to to try to bring its systems into alignment, um, but at least to some degree with what um, the the pace of technological change. Um, anybody, uh, Greg, did you have anything you wanted to add on either of these things or on the on the WIOA system 
questions of inefficiency and how how we can do better with what we have? No, I'm fine. Okay, terrific. Okay, well, we are exactly at time. Uh, I want to thank again profusely Harry and Rachel and Greg and David uh, for their uh, active participation uh, in the in the midst of crowded schedules um, in this uh, Workforce Futures Initiative. Uh, it's uh, it, it it is an honor working with you, and I'm looking forward to continuing to do that. I want to remind everyone. Um, that uh, if you want the uh, if you want to be part of the community of learning that's going on here, please sign up for those email updates so that you can get um, you know notification on the research papers that are coming out. Um, and just as an FYI, the on the on the previous slide we had a link for the website. That's a link for you to write down and then type in. It's not a hyperlink, um, so you'll need to. Um, uh, do that if you want to get access to the, to the website, which I hope you will. Uh, so again, thanks so much to all the panelists, uh, to all my colleagues on the steering committee and to Walmart for its support and to all of the practitioners and researchers who have uh, participated in, contributed to um, the Workforce Futures Initiative so far, and we look forward to continuing to work with you. Thanks to you as well, Brent, for your leadership. Yeah, thank you, Brent. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.